Uh, do turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John's Gospel, chapter 18, and to the passage we read uh, a few minutes ago. <clears throat> and as we come to John 18, we come to the record, uh, having seen the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in the early part of the chapter, and His denial by His leading disciple, Peter, in the middle of the chapter, we now come to the trial of Jesus before Pilate. We've already observed the trial before the Sanhedrin as He appears before the high priest, but now He comes before the Roman governor. And we're reminded every time we recite the Apostles' Creed that He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And as we approach the study of these verses this evening, I think it is absolutely crucial that we remind ourselves of the road we have come in John's gospel that brings us to this point in the drama of redemption. Who is the one who is on trial here? And beginning in the very beginning of the gospel, John has tried to put before us something of the essential being of Jesus. Who is this one who's come into the world? And he begins with theology before he moves into soteriology. He begins with who God is before He comes to deal with what God has done for our salvation in Christ. And you'll remember that great introduction that John gave us in chapter 1, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was face to face with God, and the Word was God. This one who is on trial is one who has existed forever. He has existed before all worlds. He has existed as the very self-expression of God, the Word of God. He has existed as the one who in personality has always been face to face with God. He has existed as numerically one with God. Later on, He will say, I and the Father are one. When you add up the three, Father, Son, and Spirit, the answer is one, always one. The Word was God. We learn from those opening verses that as God, He created all things, and there was nothing made without His making it. He is the Creator of all things. He is the Sustainer of all things. When the light shines in the darkness of creation, it is the light of the glory of this eternal Word, this eternal Son of God. And all that happens. That's what He is before He becomes flesh. And throughout His ministry, this is built upon uh, regularly. For example, in chapter 5, we have that uh, statement right in the middle of chapter 5 in verse 18, as the authorities begin to process the teaching that Jesus is giving as He, as he describes His relationship with the Father, and He says, as the Father has been working, I am working. Our working goes on simultaneously. What the Father is doing, I am doing. What the Father is about, I am about. Whatever God does, I do. We're doing it together. We are working together to accomplish our purpose. And the Jews knew very well that when Jesus 
used the language of Father about God, they did not for one minute think that He meant that the Father was superior to Him or over Him. No, this was their conclusion. They, they were seeking all the more to kill Him because He was calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. I read a very silly thing that was written this week by uh, someone for the Council for Christian uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and the, 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 uh, I think he's the president of that organization. He was arguing that in, Rome, in Philippians chapter 2, Christ does not take equality. He, he has got the same nature as God, but He refuses equality so that He might be submissive to His Father. Well, that's not what Philippians 2 is saying, and that's certainly not what John 5 is saying. John 5 is saying that by calling God Father, Jesus is by very nature God, shares the very nature of God, and is making Himself equal with God. So, right at the very beginning of this book, we discover that, that Jesus is God. He is God as, as in His being He is God. From all eternity He is God. Is God the Creator? Well, Christ is the Creator. St. Augustine said, whenever you see God at work in the Old Testament, don't bother trying to work out whether it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit act together. Their actions are inseparable. They're always acting together. That's what Jesus is saying to them when He says, my Father is working until now, and I am working Later on, he'll say, when you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. The actions of Jesus are the actions of the Father and the Spirit because all together work together for the fulfillment of God's purposes. Chapter 5 of John, Jesus says this, the Father has life in Himself, and the Father has granted the Son to have life in Himself. What is life in Himself? It is standalone existence, self-existence. I am that I am, God said to Moses. I stand as I have standalone existence. And the Son says, I have standalone existence. I have life in myself. The Father has granted me to have life in myself. God is the principle within the Godhead from which all deity flows, if you will. And the Father has life in Himself. The Son has life in Himself. There was never a moment when there was any gap between those two realities. For there is only one God, and that one God is eternal, and that one God is composed of Father, Son, and Spirit. The word composed is a non-theological term, as I just used it there. He and the Father, throughout John's gospel are one in being, one in mind, one in will, and one in action. The actions of the three are the actions of the one. And that's why Jesus uses in John's gospel over and over again this language, I, I am, lego, ego, I me, ego, I me, over and over again, I, I am. He is placing Himself before them as the God of glory. That identifier I, I am, indicates the glory and plenitude of the life of the Holy Trinity in its self-existent and self-moving originality. 
its underived fullness. Now, John has taught us then to read theology before introducing us to God in the flesh. That is, Jesus, God in the flesh, in the economy of salvation. Before He speaks of the earthly life of the Messiah, He speaks of the eternal being of the Son, who is the very Word of the Father, has life in Himself, is the resurrection and the life. So, in in John's gospel, as he reflects on the Old Testament, for example, and he reflects on Isaiah's experience when Isaiah goes into the temple that day, the year King Uzziah died, and says he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he heard the seraphim crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. John says, Isaiah saw the Son's glory. In other words, whenever God is seen in the Old Testament, we don't know if it's the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, unless it's clearly spelled out, as it is by John the Apostle there. Over and over again, Jesus paints the picture, uses the language. For example, in chapter 13, He had come from God and was returning to God. He then acts that out in that acted parable we looked at and that, that we had sung to us about earlier on this evening as He who came, He who was by very nature God puts on the, the badge of the servant and stoops in humility to wash His disciples' feet. In John 17, He speaks to the Father of the glory He had with the Father before the world began. When the armed mob come to arrest Him, and they ask Him who, if He's the one, He says, I, I am, and they're bowled over by it. He is God in the flesh. Now, we say all of that because when we come to this trial, it is only then that we realize the depths to which Jesus, or should we say the Son of God, has come to be Jesus, our Savior. The lengths He has gone to put on our flesh, the God who has always been has come in Christ for our salvation. The one who has life in Himself has come to pour out His life in human flesh for us and for our salvation. The one who is the resurrection and the life has come to lay Himself down in death in our flesh for our salvation. You see, God, without taking on our flesh, would be utterly incomprehensible to us. But in Christ, God has made this move to be understood by us, to be known by us in our flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's very much on John's mind. He he has reported that great I am saying at the beginning of chapter 18, when they came to arrest him, in order to remind us of all of that teaching that has been bristling through John's gospel up to this point. He's reminding us, even as Jesus stands before the high priest, that He is the master of the situation. Even as the prisoner, He is, if you like, 
mastering everything that's going on. When they come as a, a, a little army to arrest him, he is in charge of the situation. He even allows, he even allows, orders his men to be free and to go on their separate ways and not be arrested with him. He is the master of everything. And now as he comes before the Roman governor Pilate, we shall see that he is still the master of events. He is only there because he has chosen to be there. He is only in chains because he has chosen to be in chains. Now, the story so far is this. Having been arrested illegally in the depth of night, he has been brought illegally before the high priest emeritus uh, in a very early morning meeting with the high priest. And then between the hours of three and six in the morning, he has been taken from there to an extraordinary meeting of the Sanhedrin. That would be like me calling a session meeting for three in the morning, just to let the elders realize how blessed they are. Uh, there they were, the Sanhedrin. They're all there, the Jewish council, uh, an illegal meeting, by the way. And there he is found guilty of blasphemy. That was their charge against Jesus as the Jews. They, they charged Him for blasphemy. What were they saying? Going back to chapter 5, He makes Himself equal with God by calling God His Father. Their charge of blasphemy made Him guilty in Jewish eyes. Now, normally, the pen, that brought the penalty of stoning to death, just as later the Christian martyr Stephen would be stoned to death. And although it was not legal for the Jews to do it, of course, the Romans tended to turn a blind eye to stoning and write it off as an act of mob violence. So that was an option to them. But they did not, they, the Jews, did not want Jesus stoned to death because he was such a popular figure that that might provoke a reaction. It might make him a martyr. They did not want him stoned to death because they were concerned not simply to dispose of Jesus. They were concerned to discredit Jesus in the disposing of Jesus. They did want, not want Him to become a martyr, a figure that leads a new cause. And one way to take the heat off themselves and discredit Jesus was to have Him tried, condemned, and executed by the Romans. Now, I think they'd already made overtures to Pilate, because they managed to get an audience with him from about six o'clock in the morning. And from six o'clock in the morning up until about midday, Jesus is in Pilate's custody. And they knew, of course, that what they were asking Pilate to do was to crucify Jesus. Crucifying Jesus was the pièce de résistance of their view of how to discredit Jesus. Their law said, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. And this was their plan. They could discredit Jesus by having the Gentiles crucify Jesus. There you would solve two problems. One, you would get the guilt off their hands, and two, you would get Jesus breaking the law of God coming under the curse of God, 
and that would inevitably mean that Jews would reject Him as ever having been a suitable Messiah figure. Now, of course, their their well-laid plan, their well-laid scheme was not as good as they thought it would be. Jesus had constantly been saying that He was going to be handed over to the Gentiles. That was part of His teaching, that the authorities were going to come and they were going to hand Him over to the Gentiles and that He would be killed. Here in John's gospel, repeatedly, Jesus has used the language about being lifted up. That language comes from Isaiah, uh, but it was obvious in the minds of the people listening to it, the idea of being lifted up, ultimately lifted up on a cross and being crucified. And what we know from our perspective is that even their private plan and scheme was fulfilling the purpose of God that was introduced in chapter 1 by the use twice of the expression, the Lamb of God, in one of those references, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, who would carry sin, carry the curse, carry our God-forsakenness with Him out, as it were, into no man's land by becoming the curse for us. The Apostle Paul reflects on this in Galatians 3 when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And Peter says later in 1 Peter chapter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree. You can't help but see the contrast between the Jewish leaders and Jesus there here. Look at verse 28. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. John, because he was in the vicinity, we know, and likely had access into restricted areas because of some of his connections, is able to tell us some more information about the trial of Jesus than the other gospel writers are. And one of the things that he tells us is that there was no direct communication between what was going on with Jesus and Pilate and the mob. The mob were outside, and Pilate was constantly coming from his inner courtyard where he was dealing with Jesus, going out and talking to the mob who were outside, and then going back to Jesus and so on. There was this back-and-forth process going on. The reason that went on like that, we're told in verse 28. It was the Passover. These people had their scruples. Their religious scruples. Their religious scruples did not allow them to go into Gentile territory. The Gentiles were dogs. Pilate's palace was Gentile territory. They couldn't go there in a religious festival. They couldn't participate in their own religious feast of the Passover, one of their high and holy days. And so they kept outside while delivering Jesus into the hands of a Gentile to be examined and to be tried. You know, it's a little aside here. It's a feature of bigots and legalists to this day that they cannot see the wood for the trees. Here were people 
who paid absolutely no attention to the minute details of their own law in processing this man's trial, who were absolutely uh, concerned about this detail, about their own religious ceremonial performance, they were prepared to negotiate with the rules, but in such a way as to preserve their own their own kudos in the community. This is why God sometimes hates religion. Sometimes God hates our religion. When He sees our religion as a meticulous observance of details that don't matter, to the exclusion of a heart that is renewed by the Holy Spirit and engaged with the worship of God. And we need to pause for a moment, I think, as we look at this and say this, that it's very easy for humanity, for us even, to take a good thing, pure religion, and to turn it into an occasion of power or bullying, to use it, to use it for our own advantage rather than to use it for the glory of God. It's the easiest thing in the world. We need to see ourselves with this crowd who hurried the lamb to the slaughter. On the other hand, the Son of God is there. He's allowed Himself to be arrested. He's now going into Pilate's hall. He he is allowing Himself to be ceremonially defiled at the Passover. He will allow Himself to be placed upon the cross and thus become accursed so that He might be the Passover lamb whose blood is shed to save His people, to save me, and to save you from our sins. Well, it was not a good day for Pontius Pilate. Forevermore, Christians were going to be saying he suffered under Pontius Pilate. If only he'd known. Pilate was Spanish. He came from Seville in Spain. He married a great-granddaughter, a granddaughter rather, of the Emperor Augustus. That gave him his uh, kind of background. He came to Judea in the year 26. Previous procurators, Roman officials, governors, had respected the Jews and had therefore got on very well with them. There had been a period of peace between the Romans and the Jews, the occupying forces and the, and the people who lived there. But when Pilate arrived, things took a bad turn. Uh, on one occasion, he sent soldiers ahead of him in, into Jerusalem carrying large ensigns, huge big flags emblazoned with images of Tiberius Caesar. And the Jews were incensed by this affront. It was like idolatry as far as they were concerned uh, because uh, people all over the empire were taking their pinch of of scent and offering it as an offering of incense to Caesar, and they were putting their hands to their heart and saying, Caesar is Lord, and and worshiping Him as as if He was a living God. And so, therefore, to have these great ensigns with Tiberius blazoned all over them was an offense to to the Jews. 
And huge crowds of people flocked down to Caesarea by the sea to protest. Pilate sent his troops, herded them into a great stadium, and he lost his cool with them. He threatened to have them all killed. And every one of them, to a man, knelt down and bared their necks. Pilate knew he had to stop, so he stopped. He let them go, and he backed off. On another occasion, he plundered the treasury to build an aqueduct to bring water into the city of Jerusalem. And when a crowd gathered to protest that, he sent the soldiers into the crowd, and the soldiers set about the people with their weapons, killing many of them. Pilate was hated by the Jews. Interestingly, from a historical perspective, the Christians are actually kinder to Pilate than the, Roman, than the Jewish historians are to him. I think they saw a side of Pilate that perhaps their Jewish contemporaries didn't see, or perhaps their Jewish contemporaries made him look worse than he really was. Interestingly, the, the scholars now think that the Christian view of Pilate is probably the most balanced view of Pilate. Because as we look at the trial, we find that Pilate tries Jesus according to the rules of Roman jurisprudence. You see that in relation to the indictment. You see it actually in relation to the indictment, the examination, and then the verdict. Let's look at the indictment first of all. The Roman governor tried to tie them down to a specific charge. They had not offered a charge. They had merely delivered him to them. He'd gone out, and there was Jesus bound, standing before him in chains, a kind of gift from the Jews to Pilate. Pilate has them brought in. Pilate goes out to them and says, okay, what's going on here? Listen to him. He went outside, and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? I think there may be a tone of disgust in his voice. It's as if he's saying to them, well, you brought him to me. You've turned him over to me. You obviously expect me to do something with him, but I want to know what specifically is the charge you have against Jesus. And they answered him by not answering him. Look at the answer that they gave. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They're a bit arrogant there. They're kind of saying to him, you have got a bad reputation. Since you came here, you've had a bad reputation with the way you handle the Jews, and the Roman authorities back in Rome are watching you like a hawk. There are people sent from Rome who are keeping an eye on the way you handle us. Well, here's the thing. We brought this man to you. Would we have brought him to you if we didn't have reason? What Pilate wants to know is, what is the reason? What do you have against this man? They're avoiding making uh, any charge against this man. And so he says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And they said to to him, notice this, they said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. In other words, that was their reason for bringing him to Pilate. They wanted him put to death. 
the charges were irrelevant to them. The law was irrelevant to them. They had already come up with their conclusion. They wanted him put to death. It's Luke in his gospel who tells us what eventually they found, a form of words that looked like a proper charge that they could use. Here were the form of words. We found this man, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So, eventually, they did come up with something. But you can see that it's a bit made up there. They're trying to find… they're grasping at straws. They're trying to find something that would stand in a Roman court of law, and they think they've got it when they say that he claims to be a king. But there's no doubt that Pilate did not want to get involved. He tells them to go and uh, try them, try Jesus themselves. And they respond, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. There's irony there at multiple levels, because not only did Jews in, uh, lack the right to impose capital punishment under Roman law, but more important, they were forbidden under God's law to execute anyone not formally convicted of a capital offense. They were breaking their own law. And their reaction to Pilate's teasing remark amounts to a public admission of the illegality and illegitimacy of their dealings with Jesus. And so we find in verse 32 that all of this is put into perspective. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death He was going to die. In other words, everything was happening off the books, against the law, but not against what Jesus had said would happen. So much for the indictment. What about the examination? When we were looking at the, trial, the Jewish trial, I said that the prisoner was never to be examined. Under Jewish law, it was the witnesses that were to be examined, not the prisoner. Under Roman law, the prisoner could himself be questioned directly. And so, Pilate comes in, and he looks at the bound and bloodied prisoner and asks him in disbelief. Look at verse 33. Are you the king of the Jews? Could it possibly be? Here you are, bloodied and bound. Are you the king of the Jews? Surely you're not claiming to be the king of the Jews. And Jesus' counter-question gets to the heart of it. He knows that that phrase, king of the Jews, is capable of more than one interpretation. So, his response, Jesus' response, is to say to Pilate, what do you mean by that expression? Listen to him. Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Now, you notice he's not answering the question yet. He's not going to answer the question until he knows what is in the governor's mind. How is the governor thinking? What is he meaning? And suddenly, he puts Pilate on the defensive. Jesus knew the rules of evidence that hearsay convictions were prohibited, and Pilate responds to him, am I a Jew? 
Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And then he clarifies, what have you done? Have you done anything that threatens the sovereignty of Caesar, he's asking. And it's at this point then that Jesus begins his defense. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. We don't have time to look at that this evening, so I'm going to stop there. But this is the beginning of Jesus' defense, and it centers around His kingship and what it means for Jesus to be king. And it has application to the way in which we, as members of the kingdom of God, see ourselves in the secular context in which we live today. We live in these two kingdoms. In many ways, we live as members of the kingdom of God in the kingdom of this world. How do I operate within those two areas? Where do my allegiances lie? Well, my primary allegiance lies with King Jesus. My primary allegiance lies with the kingdom of God. It is for the kingdom of God that I would gladly lay down my life. It is for the glory and honor of Christ that I would gladly lose reputation and, and, and uh, occupation and life itself for the honor and glory of King Jesus. I will not have anyone say anything negative about King Jesus. I will not have anyone dishonor King Jesus or degrade King Jesus or take from King Jesus all that the Bible has said about Him. The Word made flesh equal with God He came from God. He is God. He was face to face with God from all eternity. I could not live if Christ were thus degraded and dishonored. And in many places within the church, He is degraded and dishonored. Tonight as we come to John's gospel and find Jesus on trial here, we need to know on whose side we are. Are we on the side of those who would degrade Him and dishonor Him? Even though that may not be their motive in their heart, that's what they do with their teaching. Or are we on the side of King Jesus as He's been revealed in Scripture to be? Do we honor Him? King of my life, I crown Thee now. Thine shall the glory be lest I forget thy thorn-pierced brow. Lead me to Calvary. Father, we pray this evening that You would exalt Your Son, the Lord Jesus, in our minds and in our hearts. We see Him against the backdrop of His eternal, lively, delightful communion within the Godhead. We see Him coming into the world, He who is the very Word of the Father. He comes as the Word of the Father. The Father expresses Himself in Christ. In Him we see the glory of God. In Him we see glory with skin on. 
In him we see all the splendid, magnificent, magnificence of, of the Godhead in bodily form, arraigned before authorities, standing in chains, and we're reminded that He did that for us. He did it for me. He did it for you. He did it for these people who love you and who serve you. We praise you for Him, and we pray that you would please exalt Christ upon our lips and in our hearts as we recognize His mediatorial reign, He who is the mediator, the one who stands between God and man, the God-man, whoever lives to make intercession for us and who reigns and will reign until all your enemies have been put under His feet. We pray these things for His glory's sake. Amen.